Let us pray. God, take our ears and hear through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our hearts and set them on fire. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. So when I was a kid, uh, my friends and I, we always liked to play at the playground because kids always, do you like to play at the playground? Yeah, of course. Uh, the swings were really fun. Uh, the slides were even better, especially if they were really high and really fast. But the best thing were uh, the merry-go-rounds. And I don't mean the kind of merry-go-round with the horses and the organ music. I mean the kind of merry-go-round that you had to propel yourself. And I don't think they allow these on playgrounds much anymore because they turned out to be a little bit dangerous. Although we were at Mount Tabor last night, and there's one on the playground there. And if you're unfamiliar with them, th this is what I'm talking about. This is the kind of uh, merry-go-round I meant. That's the way. Here we go. <laughs> so when we go to the playground, if it was uh, just me and my friends, then we'd all jump on, and uh, one of us, though, would have to put one foot up on the merry-go-round and push with the other. And you could get going a little bit, but it wasn't that fun. It was better if you had a parent, like a dad in the video or a mom, who would uh, push you. The thing about parents is, parents, it's kind of their job to be responsible. So what was even better was to have like an older cousin or young uncle, because they were old enough that they could push really fast, and they were irresponsible enough that they would push really fast. So I have an Uncle David. He's about 12 years older than me. So when I was five, he was about 17. So 17-year-old boys, they're all at a camp, uh, at the retreat this week, but that's a perfect age for irresponsibility. And Uncle David would push us really fast. And of course, the faster you spin on one of those, the more you can feel yourself being pulled, being pulled out, being pulled away, maybe even be, being pulled off, right? So I learned later that's called centrifugal force. So you have to counter it, right? You have to hold on tight. And in physics class, I learned that's called centripetal force. Centripetal force is what holds us in, holds us close, holds us at the center. But you have to hold on tight. Because if you don't, if you're not careful, if you're not paying attention, or if you and your friends are just kind of irresponsible, this can happen. that video a dozen times this week. <laughs> I should also say, I have a Vespa in my garage. <clears throat> so uh, I've been thinking about merry-go-rounds this week, and here's where this transitions more to a sermon. I've been thinking about merry-go-rounds because there are a lot of centrifugal forces in our lives, right? There are a lot of forces in our lives, in our culture, our economy, our politics that pull us away that pull us apart, that pull us apart from each other, uh, from our neighbors, from a common sense of purpose, uh, that pull us apart from God, from God's intention for us, for all of creation. 
There are a lot of forces that pull us apart. And there's a whole bunch of articles and op-eds and essays these days about some of those centrifugal forces in our lives. So you read articles about social media. You know, if you go on Facebook, you have friends. And I think there's a hope that social media can be a source of a community, build a wider sense of community. But we're also finding that social media can, in fact, be fairly isolating and divisive. Um, our culture puts a premium on work and wealth. What happens is we end up with big houses and everyone has their own room and everyone has their own devices and then we just have to work harder to sustain it all to keep making all the payments. Now, I wouldn't say that all these, destruct, all, all these forces are destructive. You know, the pandemic was such a, such a jarring event that it gave us a chance to reset. And I think what some of us learned is we don't have to be so busy. It was pretty nice to be able to just cross a lot of things off of our calendar. It was nice to have dinner together. It was nice to sleep in and be able to have breakfast with your kids. It was nice on Sunday to sleep in, make a coffee, stay in your PJs, sit at the kitchen table, and join the worship service. So for those of you that are joining us online on YouTube, I hope you are in your PJs. I hope you are drinking coffee because you are living the dream. <laughs> but there are all these centrifugal forces pulling at us and they've changed the way that we connect to each other, the way that we connect to our neighbors, uh, to church, to the community. I don't think anyone fully understands what's happened or what is happening or what's going to happen, but something has changed. So uh, there was an article in the Oregonian just a couple of weeks ago, and it was about pubs in England. And pubs play a really distinctive role in British communities. Um, pubs serve beer, but they're more than a bar. They serve food, but they're more than a restaurant. Sometimes they host overnight guests, but they're more than a hotel. Uh, people bring their kids to pubs. They bring their pets to pubs. They interviewed someone who had grown up in a farming community, and he said the pub was the village living room. But in the last 20 years, uh, a quarter of the pubs in Britain have closed. And in the article, they interviewed or they talked with the owner of one of these pubs, the Crown and Anchor which opened in the 17th century, 400 years ago, and it closed. Just not enough business, not enough people coming into the pubs, into the pub. But he pointed out that there was one business that was booming. It was the business right next door to his pub. It's a business that sells beer. People buy beer and they take it home. They don't come into the pub anymore. And he said, going out changed during the pandemic lockdown. People got used to staying in. That's just the part of it. As I said, I don't think anyone fully understands all of it, but in the aggregate, there is these centrifugal forces, uh, and the result is that we're less connected, and we're more dispersed. One of the clear results is what the, the Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Vivek Murthy, calls an epidemic of loneliness and isolation. And maybe you saw the, uh, the report that he released, I think it was back in April or May. And in an interview on NPR, when he released the report, he said, in the last few decades, we've lived through a dramatic pace of change. We move more, we change jobs more often, we're living with technology that's profoundly changed how we interact with each other and how we talk to each other. And the report noted that across age groups, people are spending less time with each other in person than they did two decades ago. And they said it's most, pro most pronounced in young people. Young people aged 15 to 24 have 70% less social interaction with friends. I find that that's a, that's a figure that's hard for me to believe. 
But in the interview, he went on to say, so we're seeing more forces that take us away from one another. Centrifugal forces. And fewer of the forces that used to bring us together. Centripetal forces. Now, one of the centripetal forces historically that pulled people together was, was the church. But attendance is way down in churches, not just this church, every church. In fact, there's a book that recently came out called The Great De-Churching, where a couple of writers are sort of processing the numbers and trying to figure out what's going on. Well, we're here today, whether you're here online, uh, online or, or joining us in person. And I very much hope that this congregation is a source of meaningful connections and a deep sense of community. The thing is, even if you're surrounded by people, you can still feel lonely. Even if you're surrounded by people, there are times it can feel like the merry-go-round is spinning way too fast. It can feel like you have been thrown off. There are a lot of centrifugal forces in our lives that pull us away, that pull us apart. In our reading today from the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples, to his followers, Jesus says to us still, you are my friends. Friendship is one of those centripetal forces that can hold us in, that can hold us together, that can hold us close. Friendship counteracts some of those other centrifugal forces that pull us apart from one another. And so concurrent with this epidemic of loneliness, there have been uh, a counteracting flood of articles and podcasts and essays and books and op-eds on friendship. So, for example, if you have a, a subscription to The Atlantic, on their website, there's a whole page called The Friendship File, and it compiles all the articles that they publish through the years, dozens of them. There's a lot of good stuff being written. Next, next week, I'm going to talk about being friends with each other. But today, I want to start with being friends with Jesus. Because when we are friends with God, that changes pretty much everything. Being friends with God changes the way we think about friendship itself. Most often we think of friends as people with whom we share common interests, with whom we have uh, common hobbies. So we have friends in our painting class, or we have friends that we ride bikes with, or we have friends in our bridge club, all good friends. But if we're friends with God, God, who is, uh, Sally McFay uh, uh, puts it, the friend of the world. If we are friends with the friend of the world, well, that changes things because that widens the scope of friendship because this is how it works, right? When we have a friend and that friend has other friends, what happens? Pretty soon we become friends with the friend's friends. That happens with God. We become friends with God's friends. And it turns out God has a lot of friends, and some of them are pretty surprising friends. And so being friends with God, becoming friends with God's friends, ends up creating a new community. It ends up creating a new way of living together. When Jesus calls us friends, when Jesus asks us to love one another just as I have loved you, he's inviting us to be part of the beloved community. He's inviting us to live together in the way that God intends for all of us and for all of creation. When we are friends with God, friendship becomes more than just shared interests or common hobbies. Friendship that's grounded in a shared dream, in this common hope, is the practice by which we are drawn into the kingdom of God. 
You know, in the Gospels, that's what Jesus talks about more than anything else, the kingdom of God, the beloved community. And in the Gospels, Jesus makes clear that everyone's welcome, that everyone has a place. It's a community that's not determined by biology. It doesn't have to do with your family or your tribe. It's not determined by geography. It really has nothing to do with national or cultural boundaries. Everyone's welcome. Everyone has a place. Everyone has what they need to thrive, and to thrive in the midst of a thriving, healthy creation. And the church is meant to be an embodiment of that kind of community. Church is meant to be a community of friends. Friends who are striving to live together the kind of life that the love and the mercy and the peace and the purpose of Jesus makes possible. And it begins by being friends with God. Now, that is not really the image of God that I grew up with. Growing up in the church, uh, God was much more distant and demanding and dangerous. God was king, God was ruler, God was judge. God held our eternal destiny in the balance, and in my case, I was thinking it was going to be a pretty close call. Now, as I look back, I knew God's love in that church through the people of that church, through my grandmothers, through kindly Sunday school teachers, through my parents. But God himself, and God was always male back then, God seemed angry a lot. Pretty sure I'd given God a lot of reasons to be mad. My sense is, though, that that is not the dominant image of God anymore. That God these days, to the extent people think about God at all, is much more of a casual acquaintance. Doesn't ask much, doesn't need much, familiar, easy. It's the God that uh, C.S. Lewis described in The Problem of Pain. God is not so much Father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. A senile benevolence who, as they say, like to see young people enjoying themselves. And his plan for the universe was simply that it might truly be said at the end of each day, a good time was had by all. Or, I suspect the other way we tend to view God is in much more utilitarian, transactional terms. God is someone to make a deal with. So, I remember this is a number of years ago, but we had a contractor who was going to do some work in the church parking lot out here, and he came by one day, and I was the only one in the office, and he needed someone to sign the contract. So I was looking it over, and I noticed that he gave us a 10% discount. I said, well, thanks for the discount. He goes, I give every church a 10% discount because when the time comes, I want to make sure I'm on good terms with the big man upstairs. I thought, well, I'm glad for the 10%, but I don't really think it works quite that way. To be friends with God is different. And it's different because friendship is a different kind of relationship. It's different from being a spouse or a parent or a colleague. You can be friends with those folks. I hope you are. I am. Um, but those relationships have obligations. They have parameters. They have definitions. They have expectations. Friendship is different. T.S. Lewis writes that friendship is unnecessary. We have to have parents. Parents are necessary. You don't have parents. You don't, you don't exist, right? Parents are necessary. And if you have parents, it means you have relatives. Uh, you may not know them. You may not like them. They may just be ghosts in your past but you have relatives. If you got a job, it means you have to have coworkers, you have to have customers. But friends are unnecessary, and that's what makes friendship so powerful and so meaningful. It's a relationship that you choose for its own sake, not because you have to. You have to have family. You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your parents, they say, which if my parents are watching, I very much choose you, by the way. It's a relationship we choose not because we're going to get something out of it either. 
Those, are, those, that's, those aren't friends. That's called networking. That's using people. That's not what friendship is. Friendship is a relationship that you choose for its own sake. And so to think of God as friend changes the tenor, changes the tone of the relationship. Now in the scriptures, we're told that Jesus is Lord. We're told that God is like a father, like a mother, like a divine parent. We're told that the spirit is the breath of God that blows where it will, and all of that is true. But when Jesus says, I have called you friends, I find that shifts the way that I think about my life with God. Less obligation and more joy. Less judgment and more trust. Less distance and more closeness. To think that God chooses to be friends with us simply because God seems to really like us is profound good news. So a few weeks ago, I was reading some Russian short stories with some friends that are part of a reading group here. And one of the stories was by Tolstoy. And Tolstoy was a Christian. He was a curious character. But in the stories I've read of his, they often seem like parables. And so one of these stories is titled Alyosha the Pot. And you can read it for yourself. But the short version is, Alyosha was a simpleton. He was a hard worker. He was a good worker. He was good-spirited. And what happened is people took advantage of him. So they always gave him more chores to do, and he would go and do them. So they just gave him more chores. And even when he was uh, reproached, he would just listen, and he would smile, and he would get back to work. And so he was constantly taking advantage, and all of his relationships were utilitarian. All of his relationships were transactional until he met a young cook in the kitchen named Ustinya. And suddenly, Tolstoy writes, something happened to him that had never happened before in his life. This something was that he found out, to his amazement, that beside those connections between people based on someone needing something from somebody else, there are also very special connections. Not a person having to clean boots or take a parcel somewhere or harness up a horse, but a person who was in no real way necessary to another person could still be needed by that person and caressed, and that he, Alyosha, was just such a person. And the good news is, you are just such a person too. That's the gospel. That's the good news, that we, like like Alyosha, are those kind of persons to God. That's the beauty. That's the power. That's the hope of being friends with God. Like a friend, God delights in us, takes pleasure in us. Like a friend, God knows us, maybe even better than we know ourselves, knows us well enough to tell us the truth about ourselves. And like a friend, God stays with us, stays with us as we become the people that we're created to be. This is the gospel. This is the good news that Jesus says to us, to each of us, to all of us, I have called you friends. St. Gregory of Nessa, long, long, long time ago, wrote that one thing truly worthwhile is becoming God's friend. And in all the articles and all the essays that I've been reading about friendship, one of the things that's required is intention. Friendships, deep friendships don't just happen. They require intention, 
purpose, commitment, time, persistence. And the same thing is true of friendship with God. One of the intentional practices of friendship with God is prayer. Now, of course, there are times that we pray because we need something, or someone we love needs something, or some people in the world need something. Anne Lamott calls those kind of prayers, help me, help me, help me. And that's a really important kind of prayer. And there are other times that we're just kind of overcome by awe or gratitude. She calls those kind of prayers, thank you, thank you, thank you. Another important kind of prayer. But there's a third way that's less utilitarian, less productive, I don't know, maybe in some sense less necessary and at the same time absolutely necessary. It's the prayer simply for the, it's prayer simply for the pleasure of being together because that's the point of friendship. Like friends, often that's prayer, the prayer of silence. It's the prayer of the psalmist who wrote in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. It's a way of praying that creates space in which we can be awakened to the presence of God. It's a way that awakens us to the presence of God's grace and peace and the loving kindness that surrounds us all. And so be intentional about your friendship with God. Because there are plenty of centrifugal forces that are pulling at us, that are pulling us away from each other, pulling us away from the beloved community, pulling us away from God. Friendship is a centripetal force. Friendship with God can hold us in, hold us together, hold us close. The one thing truly worthwhile is to be friends with God. Maybe so. Amen.